Hello humans, welcome to the M-Word, the Manx Sports Podcast, brought to you by Martin, that's me. And Matt. That's him over there. Hello Matthew again. Morning. Morning, you sound very hungover. Not at all. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> Liar. Uh, just a couple of things to boot off with. First of all, Billboards, our sponsor. Again, I say it every week, but I thank them for their work they do for us. Their digital advertising, you've seen their boards around the island, in town, etc. So if you want to get your brand out there during the lockdown or post-lockdown, depending on when you listen to this, they're, they're the guys to speak to. Digital advertising, future advertising, so get in touch with the, touch with the boys down there. Uh, we're joined today by Paul, so welcome, Paul. Morning, gentlemen. Thank you for the invite. No pleasure. The uh, introduction clip there, anyone who's certainly a, a reasonable sports fan uh, and certainly football fan will recognise the tune, which is, uh, I just thought I'd play as Champions League music, which certainly puts the uh, spine tingles on, on most, uh, certainly football fans or teams that have played in it. And being a Liverpool fan, that's I'm certainly one of them. Uh, I thought it was appropriate because obviously it's it's interweaved in throughout Paul's life, football, so I thought it was quite relevant. So. So to kick things off, as normal, we'd like to ask, are you a come over, Manx, 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 or Manx as the hills, yes, sir? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Manx. I was I was born here, um, um, dragged up in Balabeg in the deep south. Um, uh, dad's family is Welsh. Mum's family is English. Um, but actually, if you go down with dad's um, uh, mum's side of the family, she's a Kinvig. Um, so uh, many, many years ago when my, my, my wife was pregnant with my daughter, we thought we'd have a look at our genealogy a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and find out you know, where this kid we were producing really kind of comes from, the background of it all. And it turns out on the Convig side that um, we're Peel people. So <laughs> she right. moved over to Liverpool and that's where she was growing up for a few in her family generation. But when you trace that line back, you get to Peel, which I need yeah. to say quite quietly as an ex-Russian player. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> my genealogy, you know, a part, a quarter of it is, is Peel. That's pretty Manx, so we'll go. Yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 we'll go with that. So obviously you mentioned there you grew up early days down Balabeg way down south of the island. And was schooling in the younger years down south, I assume? Yeah, Arbury, um, which was a pretty small, still is a small primary school. There's like 100, 150 of us. In that, and uh, then to, on to Castle Russian. So, yeah, that was that was my school until 16, and then I disappeared off the Isle of Man. So, so during the school year, sport part of that for you? Massive, yeah. Huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but the island's a, it's a really reasonably small place, and, and you know, my, my dad was well-known through in football circles, and my mum, you know, played netball and was involved in an awful lot of sport on the Isle of Man. So, um, yeah, I couldn't. Could have done anything else, really. You know, my childhood was always whether with a ball or with a bat, or oh, right, with a club. Okay. You know, so it was knocking about in the garden all hours, um, riding bikes. It was a very, very active kind of childhood based around sport, and I absolutely loved it. You know, it, it yeah, it was. It's always has been a big part of my life, and um, from the earliest memories, it's it's sport or playing games in the garden or whatever it might be that that we've done. Was your dad, you mentioned that your dad, was your dad a, a reasonable footballer on the island, was he? Yeah, dad, You're going to tell me he's captain now, wasn't he, and one like that. Yeah, uh, dad was um, like, like a happy child of memories watching him and his contemporaries play for Russian. Um, you know, every Saturday, go down with my nana, um, home and away, and, and, and 
yeah, I'd be kicking a ball about, but I'd be watching him and watching the lads play. And he was an exceptional footballer. If he, if he'd have been in England, like so many people that we could think about in a lot of different sports, if, he, if he'd have grown up in England, he would have been playing at the top highest level of professional right. football. Right. Um, he had a few opportunities to to do that, but um, he wasn't allowed. He uh, he had to go to university because his 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 nana was uh, or his mum, sorry, was um, pretty strict. So. Right. Because he didn't have a dad, he, his dad died when he was five. So oh, right, you know, he, he, he very really close with his mum. So if she'd said to do something, that's what he did more often than not at that younger ages. So um, yeah, he, he didn't really get the opportunity to be a professional. I think he could have gone to New Zealand at one point before I was born and, and played professionally over there. And they just him and him and my mum decided not to. But he was an exceptional footballer and. Um, yeah, I, I always feel like I've been trying to live up to how good he was. <laughs> Where did he play? A position he, played, he he was a, a forward, um, mm. like Peter Beardsley type esque. Right. Yeah, that's that's called uh, Ray Howard. Just better looking. Beardsley. Um, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, just an exceptional person who who understood the game and and played it on a like a different level and you know it's Manx football but um, yeah he was on a different planet really dad when and even playing as a 40 50 year old in five sides or three sides he'd still be one of the best players yeah, on the pitch the game. yeah he's just yeah and I don't know I guess I, I was all I probably never really tell him but I was always really proud to be his son you know because he was that he was just that good and everyone just had so many good things to say about him as a human being as, as well as a footballer um yeah that's quite hard to live up to though yeah, yeah i'm sure i'm sure <laughs> uh, you mentioned that uh, you left ireland at 16 was that to pursue sport mm. so just before yeah. that then you're obviously playing sport locally you're playing for russian yeah. pretty good i guess on that basis that you moved away to pursue it yeah yeah i was yeah, I, I guess I, w- I was. You know, uh, I, I was I was half decent. I was one of those annoying people at school that was good at most sports. No, you know, I was. Um, yeah, I was. I was reasonably well liked by people who liked sport, but I'm not sure I was how liked I was um, <laughs> by by everybody else. And you know, and, and sport kind of kept me going. You know, I was reasonably academic, but I wasn't. I didn't try at school. Um, from 10 years of age if anyone asked me what I wanted to be it was a professional footballer right. you know, what if you don't want to be a professional footballer well I'm going to be a professional footballer and there was no pathway for me you know, like there was no you know it was just that's what all I want to do and I, you know, I'd, you know so was that was that your decision to move away then or uh, was that a club or someone coming to you saying to come away and potentially play for them yeah yeah so um, so this was back in 1990 well, 14 to when I was 14, 15, so 93, 90, 92, 93. Um, I, I w- there was two people that came into my life that had a huge impact on me. And one was a guy called Paul Truman, who started up the Centre of Excellence, the Football Centre of Excellence on the Isle of Man. And another guy called Richard Hodgson, who used to be the, the head of um, Max Sport and Recreation. But he had history with Manchester City and professional football and actually left the Isle of Man and went on to work for the English FA as an advisor to Trevor Brooking and um, has quite a bit, had a, quite a big impact within the English FA. Um, and those guys came into around my life between the ages of 11 and 16. And if they hadn't moved to the Isle of Man, then 
there was there was zero pathway really for anybody to get away and play football. So um, I was I was doing okay, you know. I, I was um, I, I had this ambition, um, but I had no way of being able to figure out how. Um, and dad, you know, my family didn't have any connections in the professional game, so there was no way that you know we could pull strings. And being from a little backwards, you're not on anybody's sort of radar. So. To be fair to Richard, he, he saw something in a, a few of us over here. He, he started arranging trips away. Um, and one of those trips away was to play against Manchester City. Um, and that was when we were 14, 15. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, Manchester City was short of centre-back. Um, and I didn't really play centre-back. But for a year before that, Richard was training me to be a centre-back. Um, and... We went away, we played that game and I didn't realise it was a trial game, but it was a trial game for me. Um, and after that game, they signed me. So oh, I, okay. I, I was a schoolboy for Manchester City. So under 16s, um, they took me away to a tournament in France um, pretty quickly that summer. Um, we were playing against uh, Marseille, Montpellier, um, Saint-Étienne, Standard Liège, like sub-classic like, European clubs and... I didn't, this is how naive I am or was and probably still am to an extent. Like I, did, I just went and played and I, I went to go and be a, a squad player and see the experience, but they put me in from day one for the first game and I played every game as a centre-back, as a 16-year-old. Um, as a, as a, in an under-16s under team, and I was a year young, so I was under-15, playing in an under-16s team in a tournament that I found out afterwards was an under-18s tournament. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we were playing against some of the best under-18s of the clubs across Europe and I was an under-15 playing in an under-16s team. And I just went and played and I played really, really well. And I was like, you know what? I'm not far away. I was going to say, did, did you notice a big class? I mean, I'm sure there is a class difference from playing local football, but did you notice that? Because everyone on the pitch, I guess, has got ability whereby perhaps locally it's more of a mixture yeah it was I don't know I, from what I'm a good observer so you depending on how long we go on for you may or may not think I'm a, I'm a great talker but you know when I'm talking about stuff I'm interested in and passionate about I'm, I'm, I'm a reasonably good talker I'm not uh, I'm not a great asker of questions and that's more from my insecurity of, of putting myself forward and asking questions um, um, but I'm a really good observer so all those times I've spent watching football um, as an observer I'm not just watching like players and following the ball I'm, I'm understanding the game so even at that age I was able to go in and understand the patterns of the game and be able to cope um, and I'm playing as a centre-back you know I'm a bit of a skinny so-and-so I'm only six foot and back in those days you needed to be a bit of a brute and you were going ahead and kick and tackle and hit an elbow and you know that European going into that tournament it was a very technical type technical type tournament and I got away with it because I read the game well and I was it covering positions and I didn't do anything complicated and I just did my job and I was I was decent you know like, um, I was you know I came away for like full of confidence um, Colin Bell was one of the youth team managers he's obviously a Man City legend um, he, he took me under his wing a little bit and gave me loads of advice and it was just a really nice environment. Um, there was the guy, I don't think anyone really properly made out of that team other than a guy called Michael Brown, right. um, who you know, went on to captain, I think, Man City and Tottenham and is doing a bit of punditry these days. Um, you know, all that group, 
um, Jeff Whitley was in that group, I think, and a few others. And they were they were decent lads, and you know, I got on really well with them. And, and it ended up after that, Peter Reed came over to the Isle of Man, who was the manager of Man City at the time, and signed me. And there was a right. little bit of an article that that Mum's kept in a scrapbook of, of me being signed by Peter Reed, Reed for Man City. And I thought, right, I've got a chance now. Do you know what, what I mean? What age were you when you signed that contract? Fifteen, but it was oh. a schoolboy contract, so it was a it was a year. It was to take me through to under sixteens. Um, so they paid for you to go back and forth, do they, and then play? Yeah. So I was one of the original Sport Aid. Um, Sport Aid no. Foundation as it was then I got a few um, flights from Max Airlines which helped me to do that and I was going away as often as either the family could afford or Man City would pay or Sport Aid could afford for me to go and play for Man City's youth team um, and all that was going really well I you know, got in with the, the lads, a good, decent group of lads behind the years, naive um, quiet, introverted young lads from the Isle of Man coming into this group of kids who are yeah. from Moss Side and they've been around the professional game a long time already. You know, people who were like Lee Crook was in our team. Um, he was a England international at that age. There was another lad who'd been at Lillishaw for three or four years. You know, they're top, top players and not many of them went to have a career. But, you know, going into that group, I just, I'd love to go back to that time in my life when you just don't think. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you talked earlier there about that kind of naivety of just kind of cracking on with it and you don't yeah. kind of realise, uh, which in some ways maybe at times a good thing because maybe you think about it too much and then you end up overanalyzing. Completely, completely. And that's what I, you know, turned into this kind of like paralysis by analysis, you know, because I was overthinking stuff. But at that time, I'd just go and crack on and do what came naturally to me. And fortunately, it was it was good enough. Um, but yeah, it... it that didn't quite work out um, uh, and it mainly didn't work out because um, for three years I would go away on a German exchange so Castle Rush would have a German exchange to go to Bavaria for a week or two and you know German was actually something I really enjoyed at school um, and I had a bit of a knack for it for, for whatever reason um, so in that November when I was playing at you know Man United you know, playing in a in a, in a Manchester derby as a 16-year-old, you know, at, at the cliff. You know, it was a awesome experience and, you know, that, that kind of, you know, um, emotion that you see in the in the senior side is still there at the under-16s no. level as well, as I'm sure you probably imagine. So um, I went away to Germany for a week or however long it was and like the, the, I went to the same family every year and um, they're one lovely, lovely family and the mum just is a bit of a feeder as most probably German mums are so it's full of brötchen, um, <laughs> salami in the mornings like if I didn't have four or six baps of um, salami at, at breakfast there was something wrong with me so I probably over ate and didn't look after myself and I went back and I think the first game back was Liverpool at home and I was awful I was so off the pace I felt probably half a stone overweight and I was just terrible and then the week after was Huddersfield, I think, and it was snowing. It was a horrible pitch. There was no football played. And again, I was poor, um, really poor compared to what I had been. And I didn't know at the time, again, you don't know, but I didn't know that um, there was budget cuts at City going on. They were um, they dropped their, their full-time youth teams from two to one. So therefore, there's fewer scholars, YTS scholars going forwards. And those two games were enough for them to say, he's too far off, the lads we've got at the minute. 
he's a bit of an unknown quantity for because he's from the Isle of Man. Let's stick with the lads we know rather than take a chance. Yeah, then, yeah. Um, so they let me go halfway through that season, um, basically saying there's not enough space for you. If we had two youth teams, we kept you, and yeah, if yeah. you didn't, um, if but we've not, so we're going to go with what we've got. Was that a surprise um, to you at the time? Um, uh, not really because the youth team guy, youth team manager used to pick me up and drop me off at the airport and after that second game when he was dropping me off the next day he was kind of saying well no actually we used to go to first team games and be the um, after our game on a Saturday morning we'd go and any home games we'd go and help out in the dressing rooms and clean the dressing rooms up and all the rest of it and I think it was they were playing QPR so Trevor Sinclair, Les Ferdinand and all of them and I had the away dressing room I think um, and at half time, I think the the, manager, the UT manager said to the lads, look, Jonesy doesn't have to do stuff today. Let him just go and enjoy the game. And I was kind right. of like, uh, right, what's yeah. going on here? Yeah. <laughs> and then on the trip car on the way back, he was like, you know, you're like, we've got some budget issues and we're going to have to cut down numbers. We've not made any decisions yet, but I just thought... Laying the foundations. Know. Yeah, and you could see he was being quite clever. And then a couple of days later, my dad gets a phone call, or my mum does, and... You know, obviously that that's it. Job done. It was a bit of a bolt out of the blue for them, but for me, I kind of like gone. All right, so that makes sense now. Why they were saying that, yeah. um, but I still felt it, felt it was a little bit unfair. And you know, mainly because they'd been in the lads who they select, who they took on, had been in the, been in the system three, four, five years, and I'd come from back ass of nowhere, really, in the yeah. grand scheme of things, and coped more than coped at that level with no I wasn't training with them they were still training three times a week as a group and I was just going in on a Sunday and playing and doing as well as most of them most of the time so I was kind of like saying well imagine if you had me for two years yeah, how, yeah. Good, how good could I be but even now football doesn't think like that they prefer to have the safe commodity than the, than the risk and that's the bit of an issue for getting max people into any professional sport is that they're not part of the system so they're a bit of an unknown and a lot of people, because jobs are on the line, if you get get things wrong or you miss the, miss the players, then um, yeah. they, they tend to go with safety rather than risk. So I understand why they made the decision. Um, to be fair to them, they wrote a wonderful letter and sent it out to all the clubs in England. It was a, oh, it was right. a, re- it was a really nice letter, to be fair to them. I've still got a copy of it. Right. Um, you know, that did me a fair amount of good. Um, yeah. I had a lot of clubs all across the country ringing me up and asking me to go on trial. And oh, okay. you, know, you, you very quickly go from a, a, a disappointment to going, wow, look what else is out there. Yeah, right. Um, so what I opportunities make, came out of that letter? That eventually well, I, didn't, took? I didn't make the most of it, to be honest. Right. Um, um, I didn't make the most of it. So I, I could have and should have gone to Sunderland, who were another... A year or two after that, they got promoted into the Premier League if they weren't already there. Not a bit of a history of a good youth setup and, and, and doing well. Um, I could have gone to Doncaster. Doncaster didn't really see me and gave me two years in a year pro, just off the recommendation from Man City. And right. you know, I could have gone there. And they were a club where if you if you did quite well, you'd have gone into the first team. And once you're playing in the first team as an 18, 19 year old, yeah, you know, you, you're going to get looked at. Um, and I could have gone to a lot of different clubs on trial and, and it turned out um, I went to Starport County through Richard and they were the first club to see me. And again, I did well, you know, and they really were keen to have me and they kind of said, look, we want you to sign, but we want you to commit to us and and, and not go anywhere else. 
and I felt a bit uncomfortable with that at the time. But I'm a, I'm a bit more of a back then. I was probably more of a follower, so mm-hmm. I would go with what people told me. And mum and dad are risk averse as well in many ways. So we were kind of like, well, you've got an offer. Let's not do anything to jeopardise them taking that offer away. Now, the advice that I give to people now is go and see as many different places as possible to figure out which is the best fit for you. Um, and I would have, I'd have loved to have gone to Sunderland. Right. But um, but mum wanted me in Manchester because it was easy for me to and her yeah. to get to and from. Um, so yeah. I ended up going to Stockport. Um, which what, what? Where were they? Were they what were they? League Two at the time. They were just got promoted. So right. the season I joined, they just Danny Bagara was manager. Um, I don't know if you remember it. Kev Francis, the big six foot seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. lad who played up front. Him and Andy yeah. Priest were, yeah. were ripping it up in League Two. Um, so I went into that that group having just had a promotion. Um, I was a new sixteen year old from the Isle of Man that no one had ever really heard of, um, and um, it was always. I got a bit of stick for it from the other lads, but step support was always meant to be a stepping stone out. It was a chance to regroup and go on to bigger and better things because I thought I'd proven that I could do it within a Premier League football club academy. It didn't quite turn out like that, but um, it, yeah, it, they were they were on the up. They they played like so League One as it is now, or Division Three, I think it was then, um, and. They were a decent group. The manager really liked me, Danny Vergara, a really eccentric Uruguayan mm-hmm. chap who, who played in the World Cup in the 1950s and, and was just an absolute legend of a, of a, of a guy. Um, he really liked me. Um, the youth team manager um, really, or so I felt, really liked me. Um, yeah. I felt like I was going into quite a support, supportive club. The, yeah. the physio had a big impact on me, a guy called Roger Wilde, who... Um, had a history at like Chef Wed- Chef Wednesday as a player in Porto, and you know right. one of Rogers' claims to fame is he started a riot in Porto in the local derby <laughs> when he got substituted, and he you know, threw the fingers up at the, the home fans, <laughs> and a, a riot ensued. So uh, he was he was a bit of a character and had a bit of an impact on me and on like my later career, which maybe due to how Roger was. Yeah. Um, and did you play centre back at Stockport? Yeah, I did. Believe it or not, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, um, I get the impression you'd want to play somewhere else then, would you? Like, like I always played midfield or in, in a bit more of an attacking player, but obviously the level you, when you go off, off Ireland, you go into the professional game, the level's like so much higher and um, you end up drifting back the pitch because it gives you more time and space and you see the game a little bit more um, and then maybe you can bounce back up again, you know, but there's a lot of players... Um, like Fabian Delph when I worked at Leeds Fabs was there as an under 14 and he was the most skillful player like one of the best players you've ever ever seen at that age but you wouldn't know it now playing in the Premier League yeah, because right. he's a bit of a passer and a digger and he you know Michael Brown was the same he got a reputation of being a, a kicker and a clogger playing in Man City's first team but he was such a skillful clever attacking midfielder playing in behind the, the nine as a youth team player and there's lots of players like that who are playing in the Premier League now who with these very skillful players as a, as a youth team who aren't good enough to be that sort of player yeah, yeah. in the Premier League. And, yeah. you know, it, the level that, that these Messis and Ronaldos and some of the best in the world are is just frightening because, because you know, guys that 
we all would think would be these amazing footballers or the water carriers in teams <laughs> yeah, yeah, playing. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was a bit like that. You know, I found a place with centre back that gave me a lot of time to see the game. I could make decisions. I could pass. You know, I was one of my strengths. But it was it was always without sounding too arrogant. It was always a bit too easy, right? Because I could run like I had a proper engine on me. I was fit as a fiddle. I, that first. Every pre-season I went into, um, I was the fittest at the club, but I'm not. Um, I would win every race. The first team lads used to give me pelters for making them look ridiculous. And I just didn't care. I was like, I'm here to show I am the best in this club and to play first team and get out of here. And I was really kind of like driven that first kind of year and a half to show everyone that I was... I didn't deserve to be here, do you know what I mean? I could be better. And I was kind of doing all right. You know, I set myself some goals that first year of, of um, playing regularly in the youth team, um, of, of maybe making some appearances in the reserves, uh, maybe getting into a first team squad at some point. Um, and I'd done uh, the first two by Christmas. I was a regular in the reserves. I was playing youth team. Um, I was training with the first team most weeks. Um and doing really, really well, you know, again, you know, without thinking, just going yeah, and doing yeah. it and, and having a bit of a goal and just cracking on and giving it a lash. And yeah, kind of that first year went went really, really well. Um, but then Danny got the sack, Danny Begara got the sack. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, for me, the environment changed a little bit. Um, and I went from feeling very supported to, to feeling under threat. Um mainly because the manager's son played the same position as me. Oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I got shifted out to full-back. So I, I played the majority of the second half of that first season as a left-back, right. um, having never played there before and never and not given any instruction on how to play there. And then I got shifted to right-back for the second year and was doing okay. You know, the first team right-back used to ask how I got on in every reserve team game because he knew I was being a, you know, a bit of a threat to him. But... Never really felt that, um, yeah, just felt yeah, like yeah, leaving the world, you know what I mean? And, yeah, and yeah. the, the manager's a, son was getting the opportunities that I felt I should have had in a position that I clearly shown was probably my best position. So, um, it was, do you think that was, was great in a way at you? I presume. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Over t- and over time, it, um, yeah, I, I didn't help myself. Like, you know, I was living a I was living away from home. Um, yeah, yeah. I was living with five lads in a three-bed house with a, a lovely little old lady called Joan who used to look after us, and she was fantastic. But um, we all footballers in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. we was like digs, you know. So yeah, yeah. four lads from well, one in the first year, a lad from Derbyshire, and three lads, four lads from Norwich, who all knew each other, and then me. And there was no getting away from anybody. It was, um, but you know, I'd like try and do extra and then I'd get abuse yeah, yeah. from the lads for doing extra you know and it, it's own it, the lowest um, behaviours drag everybody else down yeah, yeah so I because I didn't have maybe that support system around me to, to keep me going I eventually came Lord. down to everybody else's level rather than maintain my level and yeah. that I still kind of like think about that and go you know you had it in you to keep going, but yeah, yeah. you let other people kind of like drag you back down. And, and but 
Not, but you're not, also uh, thinking that with a, like a 40-year-old mind on now as well, aren't you? Where, yeah, exactly. You know, everyone's so much, you know, we are so much wiser, aren't we? That yeah. You could, you yeah, could be like, in that 17-year-old body now with the brain that you think now. 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I don't, you know, I don't really think about that time a huge a huge amount, to be honest. It feels like a completely different lifetime ago. And yeah. I'm, I'm a very, very different. Well, no, I'm probably more like that person now than I was, have been for the last, 20 years you know I've kind of come back to being a truer version of myself if you know what I mean right. but you know maybe right. we'll explore that as we go along but yeah, yeah. those first 18 months I was flying I was doing really well um, and then I got an, an injury that required an operation um, right. um, it's fairly common for footballers it was a double hernia repair it was a, a mesh repair um, that at that time was 10 weeks 10 to 12 weeks recovery um, I had the operation, I think, in March. And to be fair to the new manager at the time, so a guy called Dave Jones, who went on to manage Southampton. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he. They gave me the contract, uh, a professional contract offer before I had my operation. He was like, you know, don't need to worry about anything. Just go and get well, and then come back in when you're ready and come into pre-season. Um, and I, I did that. Uh, this was then into year good. three. So year three, yeah, 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 and I've been playing regularly in the reserves still, um, which was a better league than the under twenty threes league. Now it was a proper, you know, players who weren't playing first team would be playing in there rather yeah. than it being a twenty one, twenty two year old age group. And I've been in squads for the first team, never, never made the the bench or anything. But I remember going to we had a good run in the FA Cup that year, I think, um, and we played Everton. I was in in the match day squad travelling group that went to that and um, you know it was, it was nice to be around those sort of occasions so I thought going into my year pro I've got a chance of now like pushing on and, and, and getting the second contract which is the biggest one the first one's the easier one to get it's the second one because the second one means you, you're likely to have a career in, in the sport or the game yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and then I went to Germany to see that family <laughs> <laughs> during um, the off season um, and every off season I'd done some training I'd come back to Yellowman and trained with Richard um, and Dicko who was over at um, Carlisle and we trained hard for like three weeks and that's why we were flying and I'd kind of done that f for two and a bit years I'd also in the last two years GCSEs years I was travelling up to Douglas I was training maybe three four five times a week getting the bus up to Douglas and getting down south then training with the local football guys so I really invested a lot of time and energy and that summer I kind of felt like I needed a bit of downtime mm -hmm. so I went to Germany for a week um, and I didn't do any exercise. I took a big bag with me and I remember vividly lifting the bag out of the back of their car to go to the airport um, and, and um, get the flight home. And I just felt something in the lower abdomen. Oh, right. And it was like a tearing, nipping feeling. And um, yeah, that, that ended up having another bit of surgery. But I didn't have the surgery for kind of 10 months and it was affecting everything that I was doing. Unfortunately, I could I could get away with stuff, and I, I, it didn't really affect me playing. But it just was really uncomfortable. It was horrible. Um, and pre-season, I again I was doing really quite well. We were due to go to Portugal on a pre-season trip, and I don't even know why now why I said it, 
three or four days before that trip, I went into the physio room and Roger had been like probably the most supportive along with Bish, the kit man um, of me in the whole previous two years. They were there for me completely. Um, but then as soon as I became pro, like that relationship with Rog changed and oh, really? suddenly, yeah, not, but he, he was like, like that with everybody. Do you know what I mean? He's like that, that caring, compassionate side. And now, now you're a professional. It's like, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm not here to have a nice chat with you. Like F off, get back to the dressing room. And you know, that, that dressing room was still the youth team dressing room for me. Yeah, right. They, the, the manager didn't move me up to the first team dressing room. I didn't get a first team tracksuit. I didn't get made to feel like a professional. I, I, and I understand now why they were kind of doing it. They wanted me to earn the right to be in that dressing room, but they hadn't laid down those rules or criteria or explained that at all. It was yeah. kind of like you stay in a way, stay down there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I flagged up this injury or concern, which... Um, meant that I didn't go on the trip um, and they went away for two weeks. I was basically isolated in the training ground, training with the youth team, who were my group, you know, only three months earlier. So it, it wasn't too bad, but the first team lads came back absolutely flying and I just couldn't really make the difference up. Yeah, and they, you know, the, there was a new group. There were some really good characters in that group, new players. The level had gone up a notch from where I'd been before they went away and, it really, it really affected me. I think I never really quite got it back, and then it was this downward spiral of lower and lower confidence in what I was doing, and overanalyzing, and over questioning, and playing the victim rather than taking ownership and responsibility, right. and blaming everybody else. And was the people um, not in the club that would try and help with that, whether it be psychologists or anything or that, at that nah, level? Is that not really there? Nah, nah it was, and that was, era as well, I guess as well. Yeah, it was a long, long way before any of those kind of interventions yeah. you know it was before the itv television money you know so i signed my pro contract on 120 quid a week i think it was hmm. um with digs in digs include included so work out 170 pound a week um and uh yeah that there was no real support anything you did away from the ground was up to you i, I tried to do an a level um biology a level and i had to get the club to sign that off for pfa funding and i think that did me in as well because right. they were looking at me going you're not invested in being a professional footballer uh, and i was kind of like but i'm bored <laughs> you know i'm a reasonably intelligent young man I, I don't want to sit and play fifa all the time i don't want to you know just turn into this stereotypical footballer but that was a threat i think you know um it's weird though because you You'd think they'd obviously want to support education, wouldn't you? I'm sure it's perhaps different now. It's very different now. You know, having worked in there myself, it's very, very different to the environment that I was in. And yeah, yeah. I always felt like, a, you know, again, I'm always reticent of looking back and talking about it too much because, as you said before, you're, you're looking at everything with a 40-year-old head on. You know what I mean? So yeah, you may yeah. be either making excuses or you're finding things that were never there. Yeah, in an yeah. order for either for justification or for 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 having to say something, but um, I certainly feel a little bit of an outsider in that world, even though I've been part of that world in some quite big clubs recent since. I, I don't know. There's just something about that world of football that just doesn't 
fit for me. Right. Um, and, and I don't quite know what it is, you know, and it's different now to it, how it was then, but I'm not a big kind of macho alpha sort of male. I'm not posturing. I'm not willing to kick people for the sake of it. I'm not willing to stitch people up in order to get a place in the, in the team or the squad or whatever it might be. Do you yeah, know what yeah, I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm maybe a bit too nice and I may, I, I think a lot of people from the Isle of Man who have tried to go away aren't quite maybe cutthroat enough, yeah, yeah. but there's ways and means to go about it. Um, and, and I, it didn't always kind of sit with me. Well, you say, if, I guess if you're brought up in the UK and you're going through this system from an early age, you, I guess maybe you learn that earlier that, you know, you have to be more pushy or more, you know, yeah. cut, cut people's so never, for the want of a better expression to get, to, get, yeah. to get moving on. Or do you even just having that bit about you to go knock the door on the manager's office and say, why am yeah. I playing? What can yeah. I do to improve? Why is it that you don't like me? Is it, is it because, you know, just have... I was I was really young, and I think a lot of people coming from our community are young in the sense, you know, even at 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, Christian was saying it in the in the conversation you had with him, you know, going away at those ages, so much you've got to learn about the world yeah. um, to help you navigate through it. And I wasn't confident enough to go and have conversations in pe with people in authority. I've been brought up that if someone from authority tells you something, that's it, just job yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. You know, go and prove to them on the training pitch you're good enough. Yeah, yeah. Whereas other people would be knocking on the door. And strangely enough, the, pe the players who were knocking on the door causing trouble usually got the first chance because they were the ones, the manager knew if, if they messed them around, they'd be on the door giving him grief where they mess someone like me around that he's just going to keep quiet and yeah, yeah. give him an easier life. So yeah, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't play the game off the pitch as well as I probably needed, needed to, to give myself opportunities on the pitch. And, um, that, that's something that I'm trying to bring through with the work I'm doing now is yeah, yeah. to give people that voice and that feeling yeah. that they can have a voice and actually asking why and what and, what about me is they're all right. You know, it's okay as long as you're doing it with the right intentions and doing it in the right way that actually that's something you, you need to yeah, do. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so yeah, I probably, that, that time in my life, I didn't probably, um, you know, I, I didn't drink, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I was, I was, I was a goody two shoes, you know, I was a bit of a square as a, as a kid <laughs> and I took that, I was and a, and a bit of a geek and I took that into the football and for, you know, up until the year pro, um, I was good as gold. Um, yeah. And then it, I, it went off the rails, to be honest. And I did find girls, I did find drink. Um, I was knocking about with the lads who weren't in the main first team group, who probably, you know, go out for a drink on a Wednesday night, go out for a drink on a Friday night, go out for a drink on a Saturday night. And kind of like, you know, dealt with my disappointment of my career going down the pan in other ways yeah, um, yeah and that became you know the, the story of my life probably for the next kind of 10 to 12 years afterwards oh, you know, right, it was, okay it was um yeah it was would you say that then not haunted you but for a number of years it was a that maybe perceived as a lost opportunity that you were yeah I, yeah i would want other opportunities that then you yeah, it Again, we'll talk about what they were and how they were, but potentially lost those opportunities because of yeah, that, yeah. that first Look, year. It took me, it took me a like, how old was I? Forty two, probably till I was thirty six, thirty seven to get over. 
not being right. a professional footballer. Right, okay. Um, and stop being a bit of a, a victim about it or even thinking myself as a footballer or an ex-footballer, do you know what I mean? It's, it's finding who I am. Yeah, yeah, person, yeah. Which has been a, resonated through a lot of your conversations, I guess. Um, and I, I don't know really whether it's because I, I struggle to forgive myself for not make, the making the most of the opportunity or the feeling that other people acted in a way that stopped me from having the opportunity. They, they purposely went out of their way to make sure for whatever reason that I didn't succeed. Yeah. Um, and that links into a little, without going into details, that links into the manager and his son and me yeah. playing the same position. You know, yeah. And, yeah. Um, there were things that happened in the second year I was there and the year pro that unfortunately, unfortunately, I was the captain of the youth team and the head boy. So if there was any issues within the group, it was on me to be telling the youth team manager and there was a few issues around um, the manager's son, um, which, yeah. which I had to go to the group about yeah. and then I had to go to the youth team manager. And, and to be fair to Dave at the time, do you really want to take this any further? I'm like, I can't not. Yeah. <laughs> I can't not because I'm the captain. So, yeah, but you know, it's like, well, I can't not. And he yeah. needs to know. So I did and we did. And that probably was the end of me as a footballer, even though he gave me a second contract, a first contract. He sat me down in November, December of that first year pro and said, you're not going to get another contract. It's like, you are. You're not going to get another contract. I said, I need an operation. I've not been blah, blah, blah. What do you suggest that I do? He said, well, get it at the end of the season, but you're not going to get another contract. I was like, well, so I played for the youth team for the second half of that year pro, which is probably the right place for me because I wasn't quite ready to jump into the men's world yet because I just wasn't tough enough. And I did well in that again. You know, we did really, really well. Um, and there was lots of people at the club that weren't, couldn't quite believe that I wasn't getting another contract. But then when like Gary Gillespie was our coach and Gary was... Um, you know, a legend, as you know, um, as a Liverpool fan and um, a top bloke. But when, when he turns around and says to me, word for word, I can't help you find another club because it would be um, more than my job's worth. I'm like, I never really asked why. Yeah. <laughs> when the manager says, I'm going to, you're not getting another contract, but I'm not going to help you find another club. Like, I, I didn't ask why. I would just... Yeah. My my feeling was yeah that makes sense because you're at CUNT do you know what I mean it's it, you you, know, you weren't a very nice person to me so I, I don't expect anything less but yeah. it felt like the, everything was against me a little bit yeah, I couldn't yeah. quite figure out what I'd done for that to we, happen other than just be a, a decent human being and, it, and even I'm in that happy. situation irrespective of his views and the the what's going on and his unwillingness to help. <laughs> Still, don't even need to say it, do you? you can just say you don't well, actually have to go to that extra effort and say I'm not going to help you. If you're not going to yeah, help yeah. someone, just say nothing. But it's almost like you say it's it's either one to put a boot in or be a, as you describe it, a CU on uh, for, for yeah for no. For, what value is it adding? Saying oh, I can't help you either. You better yeah. say. And, it, and it's not an unusual behaviour in that world. Do you know what I mean? It's not. Mm. You know, it's not. Everyone's out for themselves ultimately, and you know. Um, I get that to a point, but there's a way. There's a way to do it, um, and that, that, I've never squared that circle with football. 
it'd be to say in that scenario there is another way and it's just to say nothing just saying look we can't help you anymore yeah, yeah. good luck yeah. But, right yeah. and I guess I've always because I'm not I I am pretty driven and I can be pretty tough when I need to be but I don't deal with confrontation very well I never have um, I've never had the confidence to stand up for myself um, and yeah I, I've struggled to square that circle I guess yeah. um, and and I guess a lot of the work that I've been involved with since is trying to create better environments for, for people to be able to have those conversations yeah. and be able to be helped in whatever way they need it rather than only being able to sort of thrive in an environment if you are a certain type of person. Yeah. You know, you're missing out on an awful lot of talent by doing that. Yeah. But back then, you needed to be a very certain type of person to survive in that world, and I wasn't that sort of person. Um, I was lucky I didn't go to Man City or Man United or somewhere like that because their youth team environments were ruthless, absolutely ruthless. Um, some of the stuff they used to do to each other, and, you know, it was bad enough in our environment, you know. You know, yeah. you've probably heard of all sorts of stories about what used to go on in, in those sort of, like, army or, you know, male kind of, like, initiation sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. We, we had to do all of that. And if you yeah, hear this stuff, listen to, like, Crouchy's podcast and his earlier days as a as a yeah. player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All, you know, all the blackballing stuff and mm. singing naked on tables and, you know, all, the, all that stuff goes on and, you know, I'm coming from Balabeg on the Isle of Man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. having to do all of that and, and being a very quite introverted personality, that was uncomfortable. That, yeah, but... You know, you did it, but very quickly you have to, um, you know, swim in the same direction, otherwise you, you, yeah. you drown, don't you? 100%. So yeah. you, you, your moral compass starts to change. Yeah, yeah, and you start to be, have to become more like the group that you're yeah, in in yeah. order to survive in that group. And, and on you. And my my moral compass probably didn't really come back to where I was as a 16, 17 year old until um, you know, about a year or two before I moved back to the Isle of Man. Right. So, um, and that was a yeah. It's that time in my life was was a great time. You know, I really enjoyed playing football, but you know, yeah, that that feeling of what could have been, you know, when you yeah, see for a while. Steven, Steven Gerrard's and Michael Owens and Jamie Carragher's and Browner and various other people you've either played with or played against, David yeah. Dorn at Black, you know, and, and not being too far away in at that moment and, yeah. and them having these them fantastic careers and um, you don't, and, and some of it's through your actions and other bits is because other people have acted against you it's you know yeah. it took me a long time to, to get my head around that yeah, and it's that it sounds a little like we touched just before we came on about christian and that's similar kind of but perhaps not to i don't know to the degree of how christian kind of by his probably own admission went in a certain direction obviously that never was quite your to that extreme direction should we say but but that haunting of that those opportunities but, um, yeah it, it was potentially you know, lost yeah it was self you know christian christian used the term self-harm um yeah i get that 100 percent. and not maybe at that time in my life but certainly in the years afterwards that destructive behavior and you know i didn't um ever go down the road of, of, of drugs um mainly because i never knocked about with people that did them you know it wasn't uh, maybe I can't ever say that I wouldn't have done or said no. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah, never had yeah. the opportunity, so it's, it was never a decision for me to make. But certainly yeah. around drinking women and um, 
you know, blowing up opportunities and careers and moving on, you know, like that, that feeling of not being good enough, like the one thing in the world that you wanted to do that you've been, you felt like you were born to do that you weren't able to do because that would, and I felt like that world had told me I wasn't good enough, but it's not good enough as a footballer. You know, I used to, I used to take myself onto the pitch. Whereas like, I don't know if you've seen the, the Maradona, um, film the biopic Diego was off the pitch and Maradona was on the pitch you know right. Mark Hughes had a persona on the pitch and a different one off the pitch and you know maybe I probably needed that to protect myself because everything was a personal thing with me every mistake I made you know it affected me as a person and football football telling me that I wasn't good enough was football telling me I yeah. wasn't good enough yeah, yeah. yeah I know what you mean yeah. um and and then for the next wee while it was I'm going to get found out. You know everybody so will the find out I'm good enough. That type if, of thing. Yeah. If I'm in that, this environment long enough, if yeah, I'm in yeah. this relationship long enough, people will find me out for not being good enough. If I'm in, um, so then I'd be like, well, I'll do these behaviours because this is, you know, because they're not very good behaviours, but I'm not good enough, so that's okay. Yeah, right. And, and yeah, there's this yeah. kind of like justification thing yeah, going yeah. on all the time and. I had twin in twenty years. I think I lived in twenty four different houses. Wow! Right, um, and jumped around work wise, and jumped around women wise, and you know, and yeah, yeah. never stayed in one place long enough to get found out. All right, okay. Even though, like you know, there weren't there was nothing to be found out in. No, ways, no, you mean? Do you know what I mean? Kind of running away from something you're not really sure what. Yeah, completely. Yeah. Um, and so we. So looking like after, I mean, Stockport, I assume then at the end of that contract, did you feel you could then go and find somewhere else, appreciating three years earlier, Man City sent a letter out to everyone saying, look at this lad, you've now come out of opportunity where it's basically the opposite and they're saying, we're not going to do that, now naff off. Yeah, yeah. Was it straight was... back to the island then or what was No, it? no, I, I stayed away. Um, um, I stayed away. I, I tried to, I wrote to every football every club in the football league and every Scottish club and got back a, f- a few um, things and, and ended up going to Darlington mainly on trial. But they were just using me to for games because they didn't quite have enough players. So right. um, I got used and abused a little bit there. I needed my operation. So actually the advice from the manager to have my operation towards the end of the season wasn't great advice but I should have had it had it in yeah. November mm. and then I was fit for the end of the season so as soon as clubs found out I needed an op to have this stitch removed then um, what I thought when you mentioned about him saying yeah. wait till the end of the season but we're not giving a contract part you think well I might as well get it now yeah. and rebuild for my future yeah yeah but I, so again going back to me that feeling of not being very good at asking questions or asking advice you know um I didn't go back to my dad or I didn't go back to Richard or I didn't, you know, what do you think I should do? It was kind of like, kind of, I do keep everything inside, to be honest. I'm, I'm not a great sharer. Um, and I deal with things by myself a lot, which, which tends to then lead to those kind of destructive self harming sort of bits and pieces or used to. Um, so, so yeah, I wrote to that. I didn't really get anything back. Um, and then I rang round all the conference, Vauxhall Conference it was then, not the National League, rang round all those clubs and ended up going to Southport um, and played there for a year while I put myself through 
whilst put myself through college, I stayed in the digs I was in. So I was still living with the lads who were playing first team football for Stockport. Um, I was going to college. I was working in the local pub um, and I was um, yeah playing for Southport in the National League um, or trying to. I was in and out of the team. Um, it was a typical case of, of not really wanting to trust a younger player. Um, the manager, Paul Futcher, um, played in the same position. He was 40-odd, but he still wanted to play. So he'd pick himself in the, in the big games and you know, we got through to the FA Trophy final that year. We, yeah. we played it, um, played at Wembley. Um, it, it was the game before the England Germany game at Wembley, which was one of the last games ever at the the old Wembley Stadium. So we went down to that, and um, right before the game, he, manager pulls me and said, "Look, you're you're the youngest, one of the young. Well, I was the youngest player in the group at that point." He said, uh, "You'll get this opportunity again." And I was like, they're pulling Wembley down, Gaffer. <laughs> like, I'm not going to get this opportunity again. So, well, no, well, anyway, you, that's you. You're not in the squad. Um, if you want to warm up with, no, he didn't even say that. I asked him, can I warm up with the group on the pitch? And he goes, yeah, if you have to, fair enough. Um, so I got to warm up with the group, but um, I played most of the games through to the end of the season because um, I was the youngest and all the players were more experienced and didn't have much longer left in their careers I was the right. sacrificial lamb and that that killed me as well because I thought I was good enough and I felt like that would be a platform for me to show because it was televised and I played against that team previously a few weeks earlier and played ever so well so yeah that was another kick and I was like you know I just I felt at the time that Football wasn't being fair for me for the effort I was putting into football. You know, I was driving up from Manchester with a couple of other lads um, three times a week. I was getting paid 50 quid expenses. So I was probably paying to play at that point um, in the National League. Um, and I, I had this real victim mindset, you know, and they said I could stay at Southport if I wanted to, but they weren't going to put my money up. And I was like, you yeah, know, just put my money up a bit and I'll stay. And they didn't want to do that. So... I went to Staley Bridge Celtic the next year and you know the manager there was really great was fantastic um, played every game got decent money um, but he got the sack halfway through the season a new guy came in um, played a bit and then he, his assistant manager came and sat me down or sat next to me on the coach on a away trip so what are your plans for next year knowing I was doing A-levels and I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. I was thought I would maybe go to Loughborough and do sports science or, you know, I'd never thought of what am I going to be if I'm not a footballer. I was just doing A-levels to keep myself busy. Um, and he sits down next to me, what are you doing next year? I said, I'm probably going to go to university, to be honest. Um, All right, where are you thinking of going? So I don't know, maybe Loughborough. I says, all right, okay. And then, you know, a little bit of a chit-chat, blah, blah, blah. And the next week, they cancel my contract. Oh, right. <laughs> so, Again, probably you not know, felt you were committed. Yeah, you're not going to be here next year. We'll save the money, give it to somebody else, see you later. And I'm like, yeah. you know, like, again, it just felt like a kick. And, yeah. you know, it, and then I went somewhere else and then I went somewhere else. And, you know, it, it constantly felt like you were, like, driving uphill. Yeah, in, yeah. You know, the, the worst in reverse, basically. And yeah, you were yeah. just, I just wasn't getting anywhere. And there's no, thing, no such thing as agents. I was probably never good enough. Um, to have an agent or anybody fighting my corner it was kind of me me be the world and 
Well, it's also because um, you're living away. Again, I, I imagine if you've been brought up in Stockport and you might have been going home to your parents day in, day out to live, you'd have been having conversations about your day and yeah, you know, yeah. I spoke to this and yeah, and that because yeah. you're kind of thrown away and you're, you know, trying to make yeah. decisions at 16, 17 based off, you know, a Balabeg boy. It's, it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? it? It is. And you don't, like I left home before I really started to have an adult relationship with my parents. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, I was withholding, and it's probably still. And I do, you know, they'll they'll listen to this, and I didn't know any of this, and it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, by the way, but yeah, <laughs> I, I do with withhold um, quite a lot um, because I've not built those like adult kind of conversations and relationships yeah. with people. Yeah. Um, and football and that world doesn't help you to do that either because you can't share what you're really thinking you're just going to get absolutely destroyed if you do yeah. that so yeah. I was withholding a lot I wasn't really talking to people I was in touch with my mates back home I had a real my best mate still my best mate now came to Manchester Uni while I was playing um, professionally still and you know I started living the student lifestyle which didn't help playing professional football but then also with the semi-pro stuff it, you know it became a something that I did um, and it felt like I, I had to do it rather than I was really enjoying doing it. It was like, if I didn't do it, I'd be letting people down. You know, I was, yeah. I, and with it being so tough, it almost like I don't want to tell people how tough it is because, you know, um, then it looks like I'm failing, you know, yeah. um, and I don't want to admit that. Um, so I probably carried on even when I went to uni at Bradford, you know, I, I looked completely looked into a physiotherapy degree. I failed mm-hmm. my A levels. Um, failed, yeah. I got really poor grades in my A levels. Yeah. Um, ended up in a career advisor's um, office at Balakameen because I went in with my dad to have a night with Jeff Walkins and phone rang Bradford University Physiotherapy Department. Do you have anybody that you know of interested in doing physiotherapy? I was sat in the room at that time. <laughs> Jeff looked over to me. You're interested? Yeah, I've always found it interesting. I used to sit with Roger in the physio room for hours and I used to do ultrasound treatments for him and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'll give that a go. Right, can you get on a plane tomorrow for an interview? Yes, did it, offered the place and that was it. Right. You know, so it's, it's that, uh, that serendipity, maybe, whatever, but yeah, yeah. that's how I got, I got him through clearing into a physiotherapy degree um, and tried to play semi-pro while I was doing that. Right. But, you know, just pissing in the wind and right. eventually got pissing to the point where, wind, where why were you pissing in the wind because I'd still not let go of the fact that I was going right. to be a professional footballer yeah, everything right. else I was doing was as a stopgap until yeah, I could right. prove myself to be good enough again yeah, but right. you know every step down is further and further away you know so you know I started off at Man City and that step to the next bit is Stockport so you've either got to make it there and, and be good enough or, or bounce back to a higher um, and then you can slowly come down again. But as soon as you go from stop or everything else is just, you know, gradually going further and further down. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know what's going on with the camera. Yeah, the old zoom screen's that. gone. Oh, there you yeah. go. Oh, we're back. So, yeah, I was, physio was still something I was doing because I was able to, and yeah. not because I loved it, you know. Um, but then I wasn't really loving the football either because I felt like I was just getting my head kicked in all the time. And, wasn't yeah I was probably looking back like I say I could use victim quite a lot you know that, yeah, that yeah. Bill Bezic sports psych kind of mindset you know you're you're either a victim a competitor or a warrior 
you know, and Roy Keane's of this world, the Warriors, you know, they drag teams from, you know, and, and make whole groups follow them. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, I used to be a bit like that. I certainly was a competitor most of the time, but I had probably a 12 year period where I was a victim and it was everybody else's fault. Um, and I was just hiding and putting my head in the sand and, and not wanting really to contribute to life because life wasn't what I wanted it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and it was after, after your degree then, you went working in, I mean, you went working in various football clubs. Yeah. Was there not, uh, at this stage, and you're not angry, again, I suppose, looking at, uh, like, Christian's story, he, he became, I suppose, became maybe angry and, and went away from the sport to kind of, because that was, there was bad, bad vibes with it. It was yeah. the to go and do sports physio, but not in a football club where where it just maybe you look out on the pitch and think I should be out there and just drag these memories back. Yeah, um, yeah, good point. Um, like I still felt like I had a point to prove to football because right. I still felt at that point it was rejecting me. Yeah, so um, you know, one of my things, the physio I I enjoyed. Um, but it wasn't a passion, you know. A lot of my mates who are physios and work in Premier League football teams now—they love physio. They love that whole bit, and I was doing it because I could, and I fell into it. And really, it was the sport, like the the sports performance element that I was always most interested in. Um, so yeah, I sought that out quite early. Physio was just a way for me to get back into yeah. that world and to try and make a mark in that world as a bit of two fingers do you know what I mean it was it was almost like to be validated by that world meant more to me at that time yeah, yeah. than it probably should because um, that rejection I, I, like, I took that rejection so hard um, so yeah I worked seven day weeks you know I was, I was like relentless really you know I was um, worked at Leeds United um, right when they were in the Premier League and as an academy physio there, so Danny Rose, James Milner, Aaron Lennon, um, all those guys were, were part of that place. The head of the academy, Gary Worthington, I think is still the head of international recruitment at Man City now. Dave Harrison, who was a coach there, is one of the head scouts at uh, Man United now. Right. The, the guys that were in that group as an academy were, like Fabian Delph, I mentioned, the, the coaches and everybody. I learned so much being in that environment for two years about football. Yeah, right. also about how football could be done in a better way um, you know and that my experiences weren't the only way um, yeah, right. and, and that maybe I'd just been unlucky or you know not selected the best place for me um, but yeah that that was a really nice uh, decent environment um, learned a lot there I was also doing some rugby league physio um, and around that time I was I was working in the like police rehab centre. I was working private practice. I was working Leeds United. I was working rugby league. Um, and if I wasn't doing that, I was having a drink right. on a Friday and Saturday night. But that was kind of it. Um, yeah. That's all I was doing. And racked up, racked up thousands and thousands of patient hours or client hours. Of, of just you know, so I got pretty good at you know diagnosing and observing and, and working with people and. Then another choice, you know, everything was going really, really well. You know, I'd, I'd made a bit of a, a name for myself. I was doing pretty well. And um, I, I re I'd met a, a lady who's a little bit older than me and she'd uh, got a job offer in Vancouver, Canada. Um, 
And it hadn't been seeing her that long, but long enough for her to say, do you want to come? And long enough for me to say, you know what, what's the worst that could happen? But, you know, part of it was like, I need to get away before something blows up. <laughs> it's all, right. all going too well. All so right. let's go away. Let's jump. Um, so I went to Vancouver um, and lived in Vancouver for a bit, which, oh, was, right, okay. which was quite quite cool, just before the, um, the Winter Olympics there. All right, okay. Um, what you do yeah. physio out there as well? No, no. So, because it was quite quick, I didn't, um, I didn't get a visa. I had to go on 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 her visa, um, and that ended up being a bit of an issue um, because I wanted to get my own visa and, and be able to work there in my own right. Um, but those those conversations weren't going down too well. So, yeah, I blew that relationship up. Right. <laughs> One night, I just left. Um, and ended up back on the Isle of Man, and that's how I first time around ended up back on back here. Was um, yeah, ran away from a situation in Vancouver because I didn't have the communication skills to deal with it as an adult. All right, okay. Do you regret going to Canada? Um, probably now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably. Um, yeah, things were pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. There was a, I can't remember who we were chatting to, but they talked about situations where they kind of have knocks of, of various various situations that knock them, and then when things are going well, they've kind of gone into it and an, uh, basically f them up, and it's yeah. kind of just in build that well, this is going well. This is this is what this isn't the norm. Yeah. I need to do something different. And I just yeah, when yeah. you first mentioned there about going to Canada, I wonder whether something subconsciously was going. This is going. Yeah. This, it's going too good. This can't be right. Yes. And basically, by making that decision yourself, I'm not saying you effed it up by any stretch, but that you know that natural just what's been ingrained in you for years is then yeah, completely clouded no, your no. judgment. I don't know. Hundred percent. No, no, I agree. Hundred percent. I mean, I've I've skipped you know for brevity. I've skipped quite a lot of other stuff. You know, and there was uh, that element of self harm and self destructive behaviour. Like you don't deserve to be happy, or you don't deserve things going well, or yeah you're not good enough um, to have this. You it's know, weird how the brain works that way though, isn't it? Because <laughs> yeah. you'd want the brain to be doing the other thing, wouldn't you, of going. Uh, yeah, and, and naturally it just pushes you down the wrong path. Com- completely. And, you know, you're, you're not... I got so far away from me and who I am that um, you're not really thinking clearly. You, you think like as a wounded animal, do you know what I mean? And that protectionist element, you know, you're... Yeah. and I needed yeah I, you know so lots of different kind of girlfriends and different jobs you know be changing stuff around you'd get that kind of almost trying to find that validation from somewhere yeah. and once you'd got it you'd be scared of messing it up or yeah, so you'd yeah. jump away to the next source of validation and it yeah, was yeah. that that as I say that rejection from the world of football that was the only place I, in the world I'd ever wanted to be validated by made me very um vulnerable i guess and, yeah. and i was acting to protect myself but actually all i was doing was hurting loads and loads of people or you know making my life well harder than it needed to be i yeah. almost all needed that that stress or that um adrenaline hit yeah. of that oh those oh shit moments um to feel alive you know because everything else was like turned down in volume and color yeah. and the only time where i felt alive was probably drinking um you know making 
love or whatever and yeah. you know you know those those hedonistic type moments because yeah. everything else was just in kind of like mute and you know black and white and it's amazing isn't it? it looking at it like obviously i don't know this little bit but just that couple of early years how that not them boulders very very much so yeah very much so and it's, it's i don't know maybe it's that lack of recognition of or, or acceptance of who you are and what what um you know, in your early kind of teen or teenage kind of early adulthood, the sooner you can figure out what makes you tick and what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, what floats your boat, what doesn't, you know, the sooner you can figure that out, then then you can just kind of stay true to that a little bit yeah. more. And if you have some quite big events that happen before you've done that and you've not got that group of people around you that, that I didn't and I could have done, but I didn't ask, you know, I didn't bring people into my, my yeah. world. I, I pushed people away from it and still do to a certain extent, you know, um, I think, yeah, it can have some significant yeah. impact, but it, it's not just impact for me. It's the impact for the really great people that I met, um, who's, you know, while I was in their life, you know, they probably don't think of me in the most positive terms. And that, I have to kind of accept they're right, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So, so you mentioned that you came back to the island with a Canadian accent. So what was the, uh, what was the, when you came back here, you started working with, uh, well, doing physio again? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, um, I didn't come back to a job. I just landed back here in a state of crisis, which, you know, it's probably not uncommon to a lot of people from the Isle of Man, you know, where do you go when you need to feel safe and secure and, you know, it's home, isn't it? And this little rock. Did, did you feel like you were coming back with your tail between your legs at all? Um, not really, probably because the gap between going to play football and coming back, you know, it was... Well, you achieved probably, a lot irrespective of your goal was to be that professional football, you'd still gone away, you'd studied... <laughs> You'd, you know, you'd gained a reputation in, in something outside of playing football. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I just ask because yeah. again, sometimes sometimes people feel like when they come back to the island, it's you know, told you so type mentality from the locals. Yeah, I like, think which is a load of bull. But I know why. No, I mean, yeah, I, I not really, not that I can remember. Certainly, from a football point of view, you know, I I, I, I had no intention of really playing, but I did when I came back and. That first year, I was Ireland Player of the Year, and that was probably me trying to prove to people that I was half decent. But then I was proving to yourself probably more than anything else. Yeah, that like you can still do it, and you know, uh, and I was playing in a position that I would never have played in England. You know, I was back foot up the pitch and um, running about like a headless chicken, and you know, doing all the things that people think make you a good footballer, but actually they don't. You know, so um, you know. Uh, Football became quite important to me again to, to run around and mainly for the, the club rushing. You know, I wanted to help them get back to where they were. I believe they should have been. Um, and, you know, I was in that little Port Erin bubble. I was living down there with a mate and, you know, that was my little life. I was working at the hospital for a bit, um, doing outpatients physio. Uh, I worked with Isla Scott um, mm-hmm. and, and gradually did that more and more and that became... Um, my main focus and then was helping out with the Institute of Sport Athletes with Isla and, and, and giving cover to that group of people as well and I did three or four years of, of that um, met my now wife while I was while I was back that time um, and again things were going things were going pretty well but I, had, I still I just had that itch to prove myself in football 
Um, and and rightly or wrongly, you know, I convinced Sarah that that going to Glasgow was a good idea. Um, oh, okay. And I applied for a job at Glasgow Rangers. Um, and 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 got it, yeah. And without knowing anybody there, you know, just off the back of beat me, um, which was which was lovely. It was a real confidence boost for me, to be honest. It was off the back of what I'd done on the Isle of Man, the direction I was going in with my, my thinking, with with player development, the, obviously my, my background in football, and just you know, got on with the guys there quite well. So, right. um, yeah, we within three and a half years of being back, I was back away again. Right. Um, and, but yeah, never had as much money as I had back then as a, as a, as a family or an individual. You know, it's been a struggle since we moved. Right. Um, you know, because the, the roles that I took are not your, yeah. your big roles that are going to set you up for life. So, yeah, yeah. Um, what was yeah, life like in Glasgow? Brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. You know, it's... Uh, it's a, an amazing football club. You know, there's two amazing football clubs there, um, and it's an institution. It, it means so much to people. Um, one half of the city, anywhere, one half of Northern Ireland, and, and Celtic represents the other half. Um, and you know, it was a pinnacle of most people's work life who were working there. You know, they were all Rangers fans. Um, they'd all grown up with the club. There was legends walking around the corridors who were who were you know involved with the club. Walter Smith was the manager. You know, mm-hmm. Christy, Ian Durant. You know, going into work every day and getting ripped by them. You know, <laughs> for no good reason is a, yeah. you know is an enjoyable experience. You know, so you really felt part of the family. You know, I went um, and got a job there as one of the academy physios and. Um, Sarah didn't have a job when when um, we came over, but she actually ended up getting a job at the press office there. So she ended up in that family as well, yeah. um, and we got really well looked after. Once they realised we were from the Isle of Man, um, uh, they were brilliant. Um, they the the kid, my guy who's still there now, Jimmy, took him nearly twelve months to speak to me because mm-hmm. he you just don't allow people in to that oh, world right. okay do you know what I mean it, it, you've got to earn the trust and earn the earn the respect to, to be allowed in by some of those people because they've seen so many people come and go and they see them people use that institution for, for their own needs not for the best of the institution so you know people like Jimmy are there like the guardian um, angels of, of that culture and that yeah. institution what it means to the people um, and you you respect that a lot and it, it was a wonderful wonderful time of work and some great great people who are still there now and um yeah i really really enjoyed it really enjoyed that time um i what, did a bit what? of coaching there as well which right, was nice. okay. they like enabled me to to coach in the academy as well as be one of the the, the main physio there um so and yeah what, it was really good what, what brought that to an end working up there <laughs> craig white oh, <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> administration Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, so okay. yeah, the old DBTs. Yes. Um, so we were. Uh, uh, Walter, um, they, I, I went in in a March, so they won that league, and then they won the next year with Walter's last season, and then Coisty was in in the the last season that I was there, um, 
and in the March it was all well January onwards it was all kicking off Sarah was six months pregnant when it all started and um, we were the last two in we were a little bit unsure about job security and everything else um, and I as a the man of the house <laughs> took a decision that I need to kind of try and protect my family yeah, and uh, new family so I started looking for jobs um, and ended up getting uh, the head of sports science and medicine at Norwich City who um, were just going into the Premier League or were a Premier League you know just going into the Premier League for the first time in a while um, at their academy and it was a step up responsibility wise it was a step up wage wise I just felt like it was a more secure Place. Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, but it was another another example of me blowing up a, a reasonably good situation that we had in Glasgow. We were bought a house there. We had a lovely, you know, neighbourhood. We were That's, we were in. That was outside your control, surely, because you would have not with what happened ultimately at Rangers. You wouldn't. Have yeah, everyone there, who, who was still there when I was there. Everyone who's there now is still. Oh really? Kept their jobs. Yeah, so no. I'd have I'd have been fine. You know, no. I, we were panicking over nothing, but you know, you do because you got a new life coming into the world. Yeah, and you want to be able to provide, and you know, you know, we, we look back now and go, maybe we just made a different decision, but you know, you, it is what it is, and um, seems a pretty logical you know, decision, especially with a family coming to. to yeah, what security? It was, quite a, it was quite a stressful time, really, because um, obviously all the the Rangers, the guys who were who were there, and Rangers fans, you know, they do anything for the club. And they certainly wouldn't desert a sinking ship, you know. And there's here's me, one of the last ones in, looking to desert the sinking ship. And you, there was that sense that you needed to be there to help out because we bought into that whole community. Um, but at the same time, it's like, well, we need to look after our little girl. And they were really good with us, you know. They, they didn't bear any grudges or anything like that. But you know, there was, you know, it, there was very much that feeling of like we're all in it together. Let's kind of stick it out and, and see this through and trying to keep as many jobs as possible. Um, um, and they managed to do that, which is fantastic. The yeah. players, you know, took a big wage deferral, or you know, didn't get paid for a while, and you made some really good choices in order to keep the staff on. Um, but I'd kind of, I'd gone by that point, and, and we'd gone down to Norwich when my daughter was six weeks old, I think, right. which was a, which is a, a big <laughs> step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, Rangers, Rangers was class. It got, it gave me an opportunity to run a department, gave me an opportunity to put some. Um, different ways of working and different working practices in which was building on the great stuff that was already there and, All right. um, you know it, it really was a good thing personally and professionally and Sarah was having a really good impact on me as well you know? yeah right yeah 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 from the family side yeah, was, yeah she didn't allow me to push her away yeah right that's um, good which is the first time that anyone has ever been like that with me do you know what I mean it's yeah, like I yeah. still I still was messing up I was still trying my best to put a bomb under the situation from time to time but she didn't you know she, she yeah she believed in me which yeah, right. um, you know was yeah, great so and, and what I needed felt that for a long time I'd imagine yeah very much so yeah, yeah. so yeah. life in Norwich you there a few years year year and a half yeah, yeah. year and a half um yeah, that again. That that was great um, in a very different way. I so imagine it's a very family club as well. It, it, yeah, it is. It was similar in the sense that you know a lot of people there were Norwich fans. You know, a lot of the staff that worked there were, were people from Norwich or had been there a long, long time. Like 
guys out at Rangers. Um, so it's very similar in that regard. But then you've gone from, you know, Rangers one of the biggest clubs in the world, but no dis- disrespect to the Scottish Premiership, but it's not the greatest of standards. And, you know, they can go and do decent things, you know, and no matter what team they put out. And then you go to Norwich and they're in the Premier League and it's just cutthroat. You know, within 12 weeks, I was considering handing my resignation in because it was the environment was just so very, very different. And there was two people in particular that, you know, we were having. So I'd come in as the head of sports science and medicine and that essentially put me onto the management committee of the academy. So you had me, the academy manager, the head of coaching and the head of recruitment, which was this management committee. And um, for those people that know a bit about football, I, I moved to Norwich just at the same time as something called the EPPP was starting. So the Premier League and the FA um, set up a brand new way for the academy structures to work in England, which essentially was trying to create cat different categories of academies. So you had Cat 1, Cat 2, Cat 3, Cat 4 academies. And the Cat 1s were meant to be the, these um, all-seeing and all-dancing um, academies where you can have experts in roles so people didn't need to feel like they had to work with the first team to get paid better you, can, you know you could have people who are expert on developing players between 18 and 23 and 14 and 16 and 12 and below um, and the premise behind it was really really good but you had to go through an audit process so we wanted to be a category one club but we had zero <laughs> zero of the infrastructure to be a category one club and i came in march and we had uh, an audit in september so we had between march and september to create a category one academy um and that was with five i think ended up with five mil funding and some of that was from the premier league once you became cat one they'd give some of you back but that was five mil that the first team manager wasn't getting for players in the uh, Premier League, yeah. So there was this kind of like yeah. loggerheads between, and Paul Lambert was was great. You know, obviously, he knows his best mates with Ali McCoy. He was one of my favourite players as a football player, and I'd be sat having breakfast with him and you know having a bit of an hour with him, which was great. The two guys that worked underneath him were interesting characters, um, <laughs> and um, I'm not. I, there's no need for me to mention names. If you, if you uh, anybody wants to Google. Um, how Paul Lambert got on at Aston Villa and what happened to some of the staff members at Villa um, after a year or two, then things will become clear. Um, but they were very much like that in, in, in Norwich as well. And um, they were trying to drive a wedge between the academy and the first team. And they saw me as one of the new recruits. So I was coming in, getting paid reasonably good money. And there was first team members of support staff that weren't getting that money. And that caused an issue. So I was seen as a, is an issue is a big issue really and so they were trying to drive a wedge between the first team and the academy and they were also trying to drive a wedge between me and other members of staff and they were trying to drive a wedge between the medical department and the football department so it was just this horrible like bitchy watching your back type of environment that i just wasn't used to and it was kind of reminding me back to the good old days of you know stockport and mm. the non-league scene and everybody out for themselves and not thinking about the best interests of the players at the club and it was a horrible place to be um, but I kind of I stuck it out and uh, mainly because I had nowhere else to go and I had a young family and mm-hmm. I couldn't go home and tell Sarah what shit they had had because she's stuck at home um, you know with a little one um, and, and really 
trying to figure her, her world out, let alone helping me to figure mine out. So, um, you know, we created, and I was, you know, one, probably one of the proudest things that I've done is create a department, um, you know, sports psychs, um, strength conditioning, sports science, performance analysis, um, diet and nutrition, medicine, and physio. That was my remit. Um, so we created a department, a department pretty much from scratch. We created pretty broad remit as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's basically everything but coaching. Mm. That was that was my department. Um, and I had to um, basically set all the way we worked, how we worked, and also recruit all the staff for it alongside recruiting the staff for the other departments as well. So from a learning experience point of view, you know, I was 33, maybe 34, um, huge amounts of um, responsibility and um, autonomy, you know, right. um, which was brilliant. Um, and I'm, I'm pleased to say that a lot of the staff that came into Norwich are either still there or working in professional sport in, you know, fantastic yeah. roles at the moment. So we got our recruitment really good. Um, we became a category one football club with one of the best marks in the whole country. Um, you know, we were, we, we were doing stuff 10 years ago that a lot of teams are only just starting to do now. You know, we had a good, young, innovative group that um, I like to think I set out an environment which really benefited them and the players. And, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, we won the Youth Cup that year, under-18s, and we beat Chelsea in the final uh, nice. over two legs. We have um, players that have come out of that, Josh and Jacob Murphy, played in the Premier League Cardiff and Newcastle um, Harry Toffolo is playing in the Championship with Huddersfield Cam McGeehan's playing at Portsmouth at the moment um, Remy Matthews is playing at Bolton you know it was a, we were lucky with a good group of players but we 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 did really well in a short space of time and it was a tough tough year it probably wasn't the right place to be with a six week old or one year old daughter but um, yeah, I'm really proud that I managed to to do both support Sarah as much as I could and also create that department and create the ways of working within that department that, uh, you know, were, were quite forward thinking at the time, you know, so, so yeah, it was, that was good. That and was you, really came, good. you came back to the island after that? Yeah, I got, um, that's, so, so looking back now, I can say that's like point proved. You know, if you go yeah. back to validating yeah. yourself in football, do you know what I mean? That I've done that, and that huge drive that I had to do it is kind of gone and went as soon as I'd done it. I kind of proved myself that I can not only be accepted in that world, but also lead within that world. Um, and that was a big thing for me, I think, and I took an awful lot of um, confidence from it. Um, but what it wasn't doing was enabling me to have a um, a good home life um, you know the, the amount of hours Norwich is five hours away from everywhere on a coach so you know when we're playing away trips you're done for you know, two days pretty much most most trips are overnight stays so you know with Sarah and, and the little one little Lila you know we're an awful lot of pressure on our relationship really and, and it got to a point where I had to choose between my career and whether I wanted to contribute effectively to my family or do I want to do what a lot of people were doing in that environment, which was living away from home and visiting family on days off? Um, and I chose family, which um, 
I wouldn't have done probably a few years earlier. Yeah. But I did because I felt like the point had been proved um, and people in the environment I was in at Norwich could not get their heads around that because I was giving up, you know, a lot of people's dream in order to make sure I still had a wife and child I could see regularly. So, um, but I've never been more comfortable with a decision in all my life. Um, I, I, I was still struggling at that point from some, I remember the destructive self-harming behaviours were, 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 were there in the background. So um, the last kind of 12 weeks of being in Norwich, I was seeing a therapist. I had, I had counselling. It got to a point where I needed to do something about it to be a, a, a good influence um, at, at home. Um, do you think the stressful environment you were working in was contributing to that, I assume, if it was? Yeah, yes. Yeah, my... my my uh, triggers are, are used to be stress, used to be tiredness, um, and um, being by myself. You know, I'm not great by when Christian talks about it. I'm not great by myself, but I like being by myself. But I need to be busy when I'm by myself. I can't sit and watch a film. I can sit and read a book, but the book needs to be informing me most of the time. You know, it's I'm, I'm a bit like Johnny Five. I need input, and I need input that's gonna you know, like make me think and yeah, I don't switch. yeah, I don't switch off easily. Um, and, and then, you know, if you feel you need to be busy, then you get busy doing things that maybe aren't always helpful. So, um, so yeah, it was, it, it was a decision that we both made and, you know, I, I, um, was reticent to start with, but it was one of the best decisions I've ever made to go and speak to somebody about it. Um, and obviously a lot more detail than I'm talking to you, but it's, uh, it, it certainly helped me. I think one of the first things I said to her was, uh, like, I don't feel myself. And she said, when did the last time you felt like yourself? And I said, well, probably when I was 16, 17. Yeah. That I want to get back to you know, knowing you're not going to have that childlike naivety, you know, you, but you, that feeling of, you know, you're comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she helped me to, to, to get closer to that. And the last, uh, you know, since we been back on the island, like I couldn't have come back to the island and stayed here without doing that, I don't think, because, I don't know, it, it wasn't always a place I wanted to be. Yeah. But, you know... It, she helped you it, process it all. Yeah, completely. And, uh, and it was great. And, you know, it, it, I still speak to somebody now, um, you know, just over a year ago, I, I I was struggling, but not with destructive behaviour. It's just just yeah, just struggling. I no direction and not quite sure what I was going to do and like proper struggling. Um, and uh, yeah, started talking to somebody again, and that that's really helped me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that battle's always ongoing, isn't it? In 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 some level of you know that. Uh, yeah, Matt and I were talking yesterday just about even now with what's going on this isolation that that, that impact that, that it has on you on you and your mental state that there's, there's always some form of battle going on and it's just picking up those signs earlier as possible early enough so, yeah yeah definitely and you know the work you know I, I still wanted to you know when I moved back to Ireland I still wanted to stay involved in professional sport you know um and trying to find a way to do that, you know, and I, and I was lucky enough to, to work for an Australian company. It was a, a tech startup, you know, wearable movement sensors. And I was 
even more fortunate to go in and do stuff with the FA and Man United and Man City and um, various other other places and you know going around scrabbling underneath um, underground trains and on the tube and doing night shifts walking around all the, the tube stations and you know see some amazing stuff and work with some really fantastic teams of people um, and with me my observation head on you know learning an awful lot through that um, experience and um, but you know it as I became a bit more comfortable with myself I didn't feel like I needed that validation of this is who you work for or this is who you're working with you know with and, and just because you work with a professional athlete it doesn't mean you want any good at your job or you're a decent human being yeah, <laughs> and more often than not um, but that's how we measure isn't it you know and, yeah. and it or society can measure and it's taken me a long long time to start measuring success and I saw this the other day that I quite like on on my own internal tick sheet rather than the external tick sheet yeah. um, and it, I'm still not quite there and I don't think I ever will be because I got rewarded in my youth by being good at stuff you know and that's where I got my praise that's where I got my attention that's where I got recognition by being good at stuff and having an end product you don't get you know, in life at the minute, you don't tend to get on what we are. The last two weeks we are, aren't we? Because we're starting to recognise people who do stuff that we take for granted. Yeah. We're starting to actually enjoy saying hello to people when we pass them on the other side of the Weird, road. Yeah. Whereas before you'd put your heads down and, yeah. you know, there's that, those little bits that maybe haven't felt important are now maybe people opening their eyes a little bit more about they are a little bit more important and maybe we will recognize them a little bit more and that external validation of doing something or being good at something isn't the validation that people actually need yeah. to help them grow and develop and, and to figure things out so yeah, right. yeah it's it it's taken me a hell of a long time and you know I, f I feel a different person and i feel like that 20 year bit in between is it was somebody else. All right. So is that what Christian said? Yeah. I, I, I try and think about, I kind of got memories of it. I understand, you know, I, I know it was me, but it doesn't feel like me. It feels like I'm watching a video or a film yeah. of, of somebody else acting. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a strange, strange, strange feeling really. And, um, yeah, you know, no, I, I can relate I, as well. I yeah. sort of early years, I just feels like it wasn't not that I, have any but yeah it just feels like i don't know when you're going on kind of journeys of self-development and, and awareness whether you just you know the mind pushes that memory to make you think it was someone else because you've moved on i don't know i don't know yeah I, I i'm not sure i mean i've been searching for answers for a long 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 time you know <laughs> um you know it, some of it has been personal but I've, i spend an awful lot of time now looking at you know the work we're doing with Alamance Sport Aid Academy, especially over the last five years, um, it, it's about how how can how can you help not even help people. What how can you design the best environment environment possible to help people who are capable of it progress through that system as best as possible and as many as possible. You know, we we have such a finite resource on the Alamance. Mm that you can't afford to lose people and you know sport is the thing that i know sports the thing that um i love um i, I hated football for a long long time 
Um, I still can't sit and watch football with that same passion and emotion no. that I used to have because I've seen behind the, the curtains of it yeah. and it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And um, so I, I, sh- I don't see it as a fan. Um, but I, I, I try and see it as a, you know, my work now is, is trying to create these environments that help as many people as possible and, and yeah. give them the skills to navigate the shit world and the shit life that, you know, that, yeah, yeah, navigate it as best you can yourself and, and build a support system around you to make sure you can and you've got people to talk to and you're building the skills and you're thinking about things in a half-decent way because, you know, maybe, I said it before, maybe a little bit of his therapy for me or maybe a little bit of his trying to put in place stuff that I didn't feel that I had. That yeah, yeah. I think if I did, I'd have probably been a, a little bit be- better off, but also because we've seen so many people on the island who have gone and done fantastic stuff up to the age of 20, 21, 22, 23, and then fallen away. Um, I've, I've worked with huge numbers of young footballers who, you know, including myself, who, who thought they were going to have a career in the game and then they haven't and then they're lost and they just yeah. haven't got a clue what to do with themselves. So trying to... That, that identity is, you know, you just, virtually everyone we chat to, certainly has been in sport at any, any level is, I mean, that episode Mark that came out a couple of days ago yeah. was the same, yeah, identity, identities. And obviously Rich talks about it from a psych, from a psychology point of view that having yeah. that other identity out, or, you know, outside so important. Yeah, it's it, it's understanding that it's part of you, but it's not defining you. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and for years it, it defined me and who I was and whether I was a successful or unsuccessful or, you know, yeah. success or failure, you know. So, you know, as much as we talk with the young people, you know, you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a friend, you're a student, you're a colleague, you're a, you know, the role you play loads of different roles in your life yeah. and if you can be as authentic to yourself within all of those roles then the more kind of uh, easier things will be for you but you do maybe have to change things a little bit to fit into certain areas but you shouldn't be changing your moral compass or the, the core beliefs that you yeah. have and the core things that of who you are because if you do that for long enough then there's going to be this kind of like um, collision between you yourself and how you're acting and and yeah, it's not going to end particularly well. So those, uh, I suppose, picking up on those roles, and then I suppose more na- now going so in two thousand and locally in the community, you uh, in two thousand and seventeen, you got became the manager of the Alaman team. Yeah. So just to go back to uh, something you mentioned at the start, which I've been meaning to pick up on when you said about observing football, and uh, again, I watched a reasonable amount of football in my life and I think I understand the game but I know I probably don't the reality is and I remember an interview with I think Carragher and he was talking about Benitez and how he was very educated in the game uh, from from that standpoint at a very early age and that's how he how he plays the game now now I listening to yourself and, and listening to that story about Benitez I'd imagine people like yourself see the game very differently from how I, who I think I know the game reasonably well, probably see the game. Would that be a fair statement? I, I, I don't, know. don't know what how I see a yeah, game. Yeah. But, but I don't I'm, know. There's also the, the arrogance of expertise, isn't there? You know, so a lot of people in football and a lot of people in sport think that because they're in that, that they their opinions are better than other people. Do you know what I mean? So, like, there's lots and lots of people that, can't be in the pubs at the minute but you know sat watching games with your mates or whatever that, that hold 
very fair views and, and analysis behind what, what is or isn't going on, do you know what I mean? But the, the, the football world is um, arrogant or so arrogant to think that they know better. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the issues within within football is that it's not very open you know open, the open, not many open doors for people outside of that football world to come in and influence they're better right. than they were but they're still not as good as they could be um, so so yeah maybe I don't know I like uh, one of the things I found going into football is um, is that that, that um, interest in exploring other fields now you know your pro license type people now your managers in the professional game they have to go and do case studies in different sports so that's a, that's a nice starting point but how well read are they around some of the other stuff and the, the better managers will spend time reading psych stuff they'll read you know they'll be broad readers of lots of different things and then take bits yeah, back yeah. in um, and certainly one of the things I've, I've done throughout my career is that kind of lifelong learning and making sure that I'm reading a real broad spectrum of stuff you know from whether it's anthropology or philosophical type stuff um, through to football specific tactical periodization papers you know from real scientific journals to to the other spectrum you, you've and then taking little bits from everything and, yeah, yeah. and bringing it into what you're doing is really really important the the um, for a while in football, the the professions have pushed onto the coach. So, you know, sports psych with Rich and you know, I was in a department that was trying to influence coaching behaviour, and we became too loud. But yeah. that's because the coaches didn't know enough about what we were doing in order to push back. See the value, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I I'm not an expert in all all the departments I managed at Norwich, but I know enough to call bullshit. And I know I know enough to challenge my staff to say why aren't you doing that? And if they can give me a good reason, great. And if they don't know about it, and I do, then that's an issue, you know. So I always challenge myself to to read as broadly as I can, so as I can understand where the BS is flying around. Yeah, ignore yeah. all of that. Find the experts and listen to them a little bit more, and then try and tweak what they're doing into my environment. And that's kind of how I've always tried to work. Yeah, it's a leadership and, quality, that isn't it? Well, yeah, th yeah it is. I think yeah. so. I just think it's good practice, yeah, you know, but not everybody follows good practice, you know, because they sit in their own little silo and that's maybe one of the way reasons we, we're in the situation we're in in the world at the moment is we're all sat in our, we're so interconnected, but we're all in our little silos and, you know, it's, it, we're not appreciative of how our, how our actions and behaviours impact other people. And I, I'm hoping that at the back end of this that we become a little bit better at that and understanding that actually what I do will have a ripple on oh, somebody yeah. else, will have a ripple on somebody else. And, and you know, that we're quite a fragile system. Um, and, and a lot of my work in academy football and certainly within the work I'm doing on the Isle of Man is trying to build this nicker, nicker term from from a, a prominent author anti-fragile system where you know actually it can adapt and respond and, and rebuild itself better than it was rather than break at the first sign of an issue or 
not be able to respond or adapt quickly enough to cope with the situations going on around it. So yeah, okay. we've got these really fragile systems in, in the world and the sports system is a fragile system and the individuals often within sport are fragile systems. So how can we help them to, to be anti-fragile? You know, it's yeah. not just good enough to not to break. You've got to absorb that and turn it into something better. Um, and so, a lot of my reading, I guess, has been around how we can develop those systems um, and complex systems which are interconnected, interrelated and dependent upon each other to work effectively. Um, and, and sport is just a, a really small little ecosystem within a bigger ecosystem. So we need it all to be working properly to get a professional athlete out the other end of it. We can't just focus on one area. And, um, so I suppose that brings nicely into obviously how we certainly crossed paths initially a few months back around the sporting club and that project. So maybe just set the scene for people that obviously it's been in the media a bit recently, but where that idea came from and how you're trying to progress that on the island now. Yeah, it's been floating, floating around in my mind for a while. Um, when I left Norwich, um, I said to the guys, they were like, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go back and we've got this amazing environment on the Isle of Man. We've got this amazing opportunity to have where kids are exercising lots, doing lots of different sports. And we've got a bit of a pathway into professional sport. People go to the Olympics. I'm going to go and work in, in that environment and help us create more um, professional athletes uh, with gold medal winners. Oh, that sounds amazing. It is. Like, you know... Well, once I started reading around what good environments are, the Isle of Man is a great environment. You know, there's lots of research that suggests the Isle of Man and the Manx community is in this little sweet spot for um, developing professional people in a wide variety of things, but most of the research around sport. So these communities between 50 and 120,000 people have disproportionately high levels of um, professional athletes and Olympians from them. And the Isle of Man is no different, just no, no one's ever done any research on the Isle of Man. So I knew I was coming back to this, this melting pot of amazing opportunity. Um, and, and, and a lot of the work I've done with Isle of Man Sport has been how, trying to make sure we minimise the negatives that being on the Isle of Man can, can give to our young people and accentuate the positives. And we're doing quite well with that. Um, but one of the things that's really lacking, especially for for a lot of people is this opportunity. So um, we're quite good at supporting them in grassroots and developmental, but then giving them the platform to then go and progress in a professional environment, you know, we're kind of leaving it up to them to figure it out. Yeah, themselves. Kind of them off, don't we? yeah, and we go, right, go on, see you later. Go and try and find a team, go and try and find that. They're doing it themselves. There's not a huge amount of um, targeted support or, um, uh, plan support to help people to do that. Um, they either do it off their own back, or they, or they come back tail between their legs a little bit, maybe, or they struggle around for a year or two and then end up coming back or or whatever. And working with the Sport Aid Academy over the last kind of three or four years, we've been saying to them, like, so our job, if we're doing a job well, is to provide you with the skills or the opportunities to develop the skills required for when you get the opportunities. So Rich Sill was talking about critical events or transitions, yeah? So a big transition for a Manx athlete is moving off the Isle of Man. Um, so we're trying to help them to have these op 
be ready to cope with those opportunities when they arise. Um, but Alaman Sport can't do everything for every sport to provide the opportunities. Yeah, we're, we're helping you develop yourself so you can cope with the opportunities there, but where's the opportunity coming from? And what we're kind of seeing is there's not a huge amount of opportunity being provided in a, in a, in a targeted way, really, within the sports, because quite rightly, the sports are, are working on um, having competitions and grassroots and, you know, just making sure the sport exists on the Isle of Man. Mm-hmm. People think they're doing sports performance on the island, but they're not, you know, and too much time and effort is doing, going into these sports performance sort of stuff on the Isle of Man with the wrong people rather than focusing on the grassroots and development stuff that actually we're amazing at. And let's just keep being amazing at that. So that's a long-winded way of saying, I'm there stood in front of 14, 15, 16-year-olds saying, it's not our job to provide the opportunities, it's actually sports job. But not really seeing the sports providing those opportunities as frequently or as maybe as, as well as they could do. I'm also coach, uh, coach I'm, uh, lecturing at the Isle of Man College on sports coaching and sat in front of young people going, you need to find opportunities to do blah, 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 and they don't really exist. Um, and then working with the Isle of Man football team players going, you know, you've just beat Brentford 5-3 last year. You, some of you are bloody good footballers. If you had the opportunity to do da da da, it doesn't exist. You know, so I'm there going, I'm identifying here as somebody needs to be putting these opportunities at the right time with the right people in the right way in a joined up manner in order to help people that we know are good enough to progress off the Isle of Man and when when somebody going to do it and this me five years ago six years ago seven years ago would be waiting for somebody to do it you know I'm 40 odd now I've got quite a lot of experience in this area how can I help and how can a group of us help the Isle of Man and the young athletes to progress, well, maybe we can provide those opportunities. How are we going to do it? Well, we can do it in a way that um, that is, is protective over our interests, or we can do it in a way that tries to spread the wealth and spread the benefits of the project out beyond into as many different parts of our community as possible. Um, so, like, football is what I know. Um, it's taken me a long, long time to be comfortable with. Actually, I enjoy football. And I like football, and it's okay that that's that's my thing. Like um, I flirted with going into rugby. I flirted with swimming. I flirted with other things. But I'm like, I'm starting from scratch. There, I know a lot about football, and I know what's good about it. I know what maybe isn't quite so good. I've set up an environment that is successful on an external tick sheet. So, can we do that on the Isle of Man? And if we're going to do that, can we do that in a with a model that benefits the whole community? So that's a long-winded way of saying that um, it's been in my head for a while to set up a, a sporting club where, with a European-style model, where you have multiple teams from mu- multiple different sports within the same sporting club. So those teams are linked to each other, and therefore what's good for one is good for another. What is um, They're not going to like start doing stuff that is going to um, be detrimental to that other that other team because what we're seeing in, in local sport echoes what we see in in England at the moment with you know sports making decisions to try and get hold of young people at earlier and earlier age groups in order to make sure that they stay within that sport and they then don't get to go to another sport 
So you need to find a way for that not to happen. And actually sports work together for as long as possible to make sure they keep as many as possible engaged within sport. And then maybe when you get to 15, 16, 17, you can start to take people into the, the sports that they enjoy the most and are, and are good enough to do at a decent level. So sporting club was kind of the idea in order to bring a bit of a focus to that. Um, and we're starting off with a, with a football team that hopefully will play off islands and a, a men's and women's cycling um, teams that will, will will compete in you know national series as a continental um, cycling team. Um, but the, the the idea really is that those teams give the Isle of Man a, a springboard. Um, the people's within them, the coaching staff, the, the performance staff, the, the athletes. Also the sponsors, um, also the supporters, you know, also, you know, any aspects of the Manx community that would like to be involved, an opportunity to showcase what they're doing and to start shouting about what good things we have going on on the yeah. Isle of Man, really. And, and um, but also filling that competition gap, you know, so, so building the skills required in order to survive in a pretty cutthroat world in a way that we believe is a good way of doing it like you don't have to be a dick to be successful you don't have to you know have this capitalist model in order to be successful you don't you don't have to be cutthroat and do things um um that you know will make things worse for somebody else in order to be successful you know yeah. so we we want we think the project um will work if the community can get behind it and i guess you know i need to find a shorter way of saying why it's a <laughs> it's a good idea <laughs> and how have you found the community receptive to it over the yeah. first period so so yeah pr pretty good like you know we're when you sit down and talk to people about it they get excited um they can see why it would be beneficial beyond um the 11 players on the football pitch or the you know six men and six women cycling away you know um it it is maybe we're, we're struggling to get beyond football at the moment um a lot, a lot of people may be thinking it's just a way in us for us to um have a football club set up you know but it, the model has always been let's have a sporting club which is a membership club you know so 20 quid you can pay become a member of that club which means you're an owner of the teams that it owns and then the football club is the bit that hopefully will generate the most revenue so as more and more teams can be added to that yeah yeah um but i think it we haven't launched it yet but we're we're trying to find a way to explain it in such a way that people go yeah i get it you know and We've had people from Canada and Australia, part of the Monk societies that get it, and they're going like, I can't wait. It's a way for us to feel connected to the Isle of Man. It's something we can follow on a week-to-week -week basis, you know. I didn't have the opportunity of going to football matches with my dad as a kid. You know, there's lots of opportunities, lots of yeah, things yeah. that we live on the Isle of Man that are we going to, you know, I think we used to, used to be able to do in the sense of, you know, four months ago, you can go and watch Everton play or watch Liverpool play with your dad. When are we going to be able to do that, that again yeah. easily? Um, but hopefully this club gives people opportunity to access those type of experiences that um, people have in England by being, have, being connected to a club that is part of them yeah. that they don't currently have um, and a way to bring people together on a weekly basis that um, with the fracturing of our society, you know, church isn't quite as important as it used to be, pubs aren't 
the, the meeting place there used to be the smaller communities you know there's less there's less meeting of people in a social way and we hope that the football matches can turn into that yeah. and a place where people value coming together with a group of like-minded people and being part of something bigger than themselves and then if you've got uh, the, the cycling teams competing in Europe you know on a week-to-week basis the, the island can get behind that and be part of something that's bigger than themselves you know we have these festivals we have the island games we have our national teams going away and doing stuff but they don't happen very frequently so we follow them in the moment but there's nothing there that, to keep it going yeah, yeah, whereas yeah. these week-to-week games and competitions hopefully that are the teams from sporting club will will be part of gives that narrative to manx life and we yeah. can <clears throat> sport is a way for us to figure ourselves out and f- put into context the crap that's going on around us a little bit and maybe yeah. release some of that emotion if we're not comfortable of doing it in, in other ways. And we don't have that release on the Isle of Man other than playing. But if yeah. you're not playing and you're not interested in playing, you can't follow. Yeah. Um, and this hopefully will give a place for people to follow and be part of a bigger narrative and a bigger story that hopefully not just promotes the people who are involved in it on a day-to-day basis, but also the businesses and the community and, and everything else. I'm sure. I mean, I've been involved in, in the cycling side for a couple of years on the, I suppose, that community and club feel. And I mean, I got I work with committee people that, again, don't race, don't compete, but they want to be part of that community and contribute towards it. So there's people out there, and I'm sure it's the same in all sports. And if you can then bring up that focal point and then add on the fact that you can build this pathway, whatever that sport might be for these these individuals, then surely that's a, the only thing is a good thing, isn't it? There's no negative in that. Or... Well, you'd hope so, but it, you, you, the bit is, is about how it adds value to what's already there yeah, rather yeah. than detracts from what's already there. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm a bit of a thinker and I probably overthink and think too much, but one of the things I'm quite good at is looking at secondary and tertiary consequences to actions. And it's trying to minimise those secondary and tertiary risks to the project and and making sure that everything has been thought through. If we do this, then what will happen? Mm-hmm. Or what the what's the likely? And let's choose the one that's going to be the least worst outcome. Yeah. Um, and, and trying to minimise the harm in what, what we do, you know, so that, you know, without going a bit too political or, you know, too off the moment, you know, should we or shouldn't we wear a, a face mask, you know, when we're out and about? Well, all the research suggests the face mask is there to stop you from infecting other people. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it minimizes the harm to others, that action. I mean, it doesn't necessarily protect you. So depending upon what way you look around, look on that, you're going to go, yeah, I'll wear one or no, I won't. Yeah, so my training as a physio is do the least harm possible. So every action we take with the sporting club has to do the least harm possible. Actually, in a a really shit circumstance, but the good outcome is people are now starting to think, what's the worst, what's the least harm I can do with my actions to other people? That's not a bad thing. No, because, no. <laughs> because then we uh, we stop we're trying to do things to other people because quite a lot of the things we do to, that we think are helping people are actually going to harm them because yeah. we're adding stuff into a complex system. Actually, you've got to strip stuff out of a complex system and then you're probably going to get less harm. Yeah. So, you know, like I say, I overthink stuff. <laughs> and, um, no, I think know, that's right. I think I hope but this you know, project is, is based around that is like how can we create this wonderful 
bubbling melting pot of an ecosystem through sport on the Isle of Man that that creates as many benefits as possible by stripping out all the stuff that potentially could could be harmful and we won't get it right you know we we not from day one but um you know my message to a young footballer do you want to be good at football or do you want us to be interested in you in 10 years time well do dancing go to gymnastics ride your bike um go and play rugby you know go yeah. and do all those you know so i'm not going to say you've got to be in our academy from four years of age because that's what the english system are doing and we know that's crap yeah, yeah, you know, so it's those messaging is like, how can we push things out that we know is going to be beneficial to as many as possible? But ultimately, it's the right advice as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so the people that want to learn more about it, you've got a Facebook page which we'll stick in our footnotes, and obviously to reach out to yourself as well to talk to yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got um, uh, a website which is um, sportingclub.im, um, yeah. and the Facebook group which is um, just Sporting Club Isle of Man. Um, we've also got like the football group is is established and we've got um, sorry that's uh, the wife saying I've been talking too long yeah. <laughs> sorry Sarah saying she's been talking too long um, so yeah um, the the Facebook group is is for football club is um, FCR of Man uh, and we're in the process of doing some stuff with the cycling as well but yeah, we're, yeah. we're hopeful that the um, sporting club thing will, will go live in the next few weeks um, yeah. where we, we want to be sensitive to what's going on on the Isle of Man at the moment and um, we hope that the story and that what we're trying to do will be something that builds a positive yeah hopefully the ultimately the what's going through that what you are seeing now is that community like you say people waving at you and that back to the core of the community and hopefully that that seems to be one of your key values within what you're doing at the sporting club so it's to me although it's a shitty situation we're all in and people far worse, fortunately, than ourselves. Unfortunately, sorry, than ourselves. But it might, it might help the opportunity that you're trying to create, ultimately. Hopefully, you know, and... Take some good if, out of it. Yeah, and if, if people... The, the tricky bit, I guess, for us now in the next year or two is that, um, you know, we were kind of set up and ready to go and play in the, the league in the summer. Um, the cycling team was hopefully ready to go mm. next year. You know, if people think that's a half decent thing for our community, then, you know, hopefully 20 quid, you know, for 8, 10, 20,000 people, you know, because yeah. the connect the Manx Heritage connections that you have all around the year, all around the world, isn't too big an ask um, because our businesses will be struggling for a little while. There's no, no getting away from that. And part of our focus now for the sporting club is to build a platform that can really help those businesses to, to um, reboot, to to find new opportunities, to 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 become established again, and, and start bringing some money in over the next few years. And if that means more people from our community pay twenty quid in order to give them that platform, I think that's a an awesome way of yeah, no, couldn't agree of, of doing that. So couldn't agree more. Well, th thanks for your time today. I'll let you no, thank back you. to the family. Yeah, uh, thank you. Appreciate thank you being you. obviously you know very honest in some of your conversations there about your struggles as well. And I think it's always good for sometimes it's hard to talk publicly about those things, but I think people take positive. I've seen people take positives and reach out to people, and you know sometimes people are in those same circumstances and they think no one else is going through it. And when they hear it from other people who've been through it, they can you know it just gives them some understanding that they're not alone in those situations. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. I hope so. I think. You know, everyone has their struggles, eh? None of us are, we're perfectly imperfect, you know, yeah, so absolutely. we're, you know, 
it's just on a sliding scale of yeah. how bad it is on a day to day basis. So, um, yeah, yeah my, I've, sometimes I don't, I don't really talk about it much because I, I don't, it, I don't want it in it as an excuse or it's easy to talk about it these days because kind of everybody is, but at the same time, it's an acknowledgement that life's tough eh? and, and stuff happens and, you know, we don't all deal with it as well as we could do. Um, but a bit of time and a bit of patience with yourself more than anybody else and, uh, you know, get through the other side. So, yeah, I agree. Thank you very much. I think it's my comment at the start and why Matt's being so quiet because clearly you are hungover. But, uh, <laughs> Is he still there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's vomiting in a bucket in the corner. Uh, I don't know whether you just want to wrap up, Matt. Yeah, will do. So, uh, whether you're listening or in watching, please like, subscribe, share, and leave those five-star reviews free, please. Find us on social media. On Facebook, the M-Word Podcast. Twitter, Pod, And on Instagram, we are the M-Word IOM. Cheers. Uh, thanks for letting us get into your ears once again. It's word out from Martin. And word out from Matt.